Welcome to the Rosemont Baptist Church podcast. Rosemont is a thriving group of believers who desire to connect with Jesus and his church, grow in faith and understanding of God's word, and serve in our local area and around the world. We are located in LaGrange, Georgia at 3794 Hamilton Road and invite you to attend any of our three services on Sunday mornings. Please visit our website at rosemontchurch.org for more information. And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. Take your Bibles open to John chapter 14. John chapter 14, let me welcome you here this morning, whether you're in person, whether you're watching us from home, whether you're watching in the fellowship hall, in the overflow, we're glad you're with us, glad we can worship together, excited about this sermon series that we are continuing this morning and and really kind of getting towards the end. I've been preaching this series entitled, I Am, The Seven Sayings of Jesus Through the Book of John. Seven different times, Jesus uses this phrase, I Am, to describe himself. And we've seen every week how he kind of speaks about prophecy and how he tied it to the Old Testament and how these people would have seen that Jesus is claiming to be Messiah and the significance of that for this first century Jewish audience. And so every week I've kind of read each one of these. I'm going to do it again. And I pray that as we get uh, kind of through this series that maybe you begin to memorize some of these or you're a little more familiar with him. John chapter 6, 35, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. John 10, 7, I am the door. John eleven twenty five, 25, I am the resurrection and the life. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. John 14, 6, that's today, I am the way and the truth and the life. And then John chapter 15, verse 5, I am the vine. Now, I always like to kind of put this in context, right? I think it's always important for us to understand what's happening in Scripture around what we're going to study this morning. So John chapter 14, which we're going to be looking at this morning, is just hours before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus has lived a sinless life. He's done miraculous things. He's healed people. He's taught people. He's now willingly walked to Jerusalem, right? That's important for us to understand. Nobody forced him to go. He willingly walks to Jerusalem. And when we pick up the account in John chapter 14, he's in the upper room with his followers He knows he's just hours before being arrested, tried, and crucified. And he's washed the disciples' feet at this point. He's explained that Judas is going to betray him. He's explained that Peter is going to deny him, right? And so we're just a a few hours before his arrest and before his trial and before his crucifixion. So let's jump right in. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. Jesus speaking to his followers, to his small group of disciples there in the upper room. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, here it is, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now this sermon this morning is going to be a little bit different because there's a, there's a lot of truth in here. There's a lot of things we could say. And as I work through this, I've told you this sometimes before, as I work through this during the course of the week, I always start early Monday morning praying and studying. And as I work through this sermon during the week, sometimes it changes. And the way I started this week 
is different than the way I finished because there's kind of a main idea in verse 6 that I, I really want to focus on this morning. I really want to think a lot about. So I'm going to give you kind of the first two main ideas rather quickly. We're going to go through the, those, make sure we understand them. Then we're really going to camp out in verse 6 because I think that's really foundational for us to understand what Christ is saying here. But the first truth I want you to see this morning, number one, we have it on the screen, is that Jesus comforts. Now remember the context of what's going on here. This is important for us to understand. Jesus knows. He fully understands that he's just a few hours before his arrest and crucifixion. He understands the pain he's about to endure. He understands the suffering. He understands the agony and yet in this moment, instead of worrying about himself, instead of worrying about what he's going to go through, instead he's thinking about the disciples. He's thinking about their confusion. He's thinking about their struggles. He's just talked about someone betraying him. He's just talked about Peter denying him. And so it's in this moment, even though he's, he's about to walk to the cross and be crucified, John 14, 1, he says to his followers, let not your hearts be troubled. I think that's an interesting uh, thing for us to understand. It gives us just a little glimpse into the heartbeat of who Jesus was. It gives us a little glimpse into his love, into his compassion, into how much he cared and followed his disciples. In fact, it reminds me of the beginning of John chapter 13. I don't have it on the screen, but if you've got your Bibles, you can flip that one chapter. It really kind of explains to us exactly who Jesus was. John chapter 13, verse 1 says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, right? he knew what was about to happen. Listen, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Right, the, the love of Jesus and the compassion of Jesus and the comfort of Jesus for his followers in the first century is clear. It's still clear today. One writer said it like this. He said, on this night of nights, when of all times it would have been appropriate for Jesus' followers to lend him emotional and spiritual support, he is still the one who gives comforts and instructs. Right? It lets us into the heartbeat of who Jesus was, the fact that he loves us, that he cares for us, and watch, he brings us great comfort in all the things we struggle through. And so, so whether you're going through a, a family crisis, whether you're going through some sort of a sickness, whether you're going through a difficult job situation or something else, we understand that there is hope and there is peace and there is great comfort in who Jesus is. And so if you're walking through, as the scripture teaches, the valley of the shadow of death, I would encourage you and really challenge you to look for comfort in the things of Christ. Now there's a step beyond that. I want you to notice why these people, why the followers of Christ are comforted. Look at verse 1 again. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Right? We see that Jesus comforts first. Truth number two, Jesus prepares. 
Right now, there's, there's some debate among scholars about the way this word is translated there in these verses. Because the King James uses the word mansion, the NIV and the ESV use the word room, I think. So there's some discussion about whether or not Jesus has prepared a mansion for us or just a place we can stay, a room or a smaller house or whatever it looks like. And we can kind of debate and discuss specifically what that looks like. And scholars have different opinions. But here's the heart of what's going on here. This is what matters to us. Jesus has gone ahead of us in heaven. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he's prepared a place for you. Isn't that incredible? That's great comfort for you. Right? There's great comfort and peace and hope knowing that Jesus who gave his life for you on the cross, has now gone into heaven. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, he is preparing a way, he's preparing a place for you so that he can receive you back to himself. So where he is in heaven, you may be also. That's what Scripture teaches. I'll never forget the first time we brought Pastor Maria and Raphael to America. And if you don't know who Pastor Raphael is, he's the pastor, or one of the pastors that we've partnered with in Guatemala. And he works in uh, to call it a remote jungle village is probably an overstatement. It's in the middle of nowhere. There's nothing there. Uh, you have to drive long periods of time to get there. Uh, very little electricity, no running water. Uh, poverty is just incredible. You can imagine the circumstances under which he ministered. And so we invited him to come to America several years ago, and I love Raphael. And he might be watching. Hola, Pastor Raphael, if he's watching. He speaks very little English. Uh, but he loves to watch, and so he tunes in sometimes. He may be watching us this morning, but I'll never forget when he and Maria came to America the very first time. First time they'd ever been to America. Right? Now, they live in a city uh, near the big lake, Lake Attilan, which is a beautiful lake in Guatemala, uh, in an area that's, that's a lot more developed. But he had never been to America, and so you can imagine the culture shock. Right, Maria came and, and wore her beautiful Guatemalan garb, right? The traditional Guatemalan, the skirt with all different colors and the shirt with the, the sequins and embroidery and very beautiful. They're very different from what most ladies wear here. And I'll never forget when we got them here, we had the opportunity to take them to an Auburn football game. And you want to talk about people looking and stopping and taking pictures. It was pretty incredible to watch. And we actually, the way the, I still don't remember. I was thinking out loud in the first service. I don't remember why it was like this, uh, but they had seats kind of down away from us. They may have been your seats. They were your seats. That's what I just popped in mind. Kirk gave us those seats. So he was sitting down away from where we were sitting, and we could see him. And through that, throughout the entire game, people were turning around, taking pictures of him, taking selfies. It's not every day you see somebody in the tradition Guatemala outfit in a football game in Auburn. But before they came, Amy and I thought a lot about, and we did a lot of preparation because we knew they'd never been here before. We wanted when they got here for them to feel comfortable. We wanted them to feel at home. We wanted them to feel loved. We wanted them to know that we cared deeply for them. So he stayed in my house with my family, and I'm so glad he did. I'd love to have him back. We may do that again in the future. But I just think about this passage of Scripture, and it reminds me of that because Jesus loves us deeply and cares so much about us that he's already gone ahead of us, and he's now preparing a place for us to go. That's amazing, because he loves us, and he wants us to be with him. So we get this picture, right? We're kind of pulling the curtain back a little bit, and we're seeing the heartbeat of Christ, that he cares about us, 
that he comforts us, that he has compassion for us, that he prepares a place for us so that we can know one day if we're followers of Christ that we pass from this world into eternity, he's going to be there waiting on us. Isn't that incredible? Man, I hope that brings great joy to your heart and great peace and and great comfort. And so we see the idea of comfort and the idea of provision that he's providing and preparing. But it's the last couple of verses that I really want to think through this morning. So Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And here it is, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's truth number three. We're going to stay here for a while. Very simply, Jesus saves. Right? He comforts, he protects, and he saves. And I want to point something out to you. I want you to pull verse six up, if you would, for me, please. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Verse six, Jesus says, I am, what's that word? The way, definitive, right? And the truth And the life. He doesn't say, I am a way. He doesn't say, I'm one of many ways. He doesn't say, look, it doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you believe something, you'll one day end up in heaven. That's not what Jesus says. He says very clearly, I am the way and the truth and the life. And in case there was any doubt and you didn't know, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way to heaven, and it's through Christ. Now, we see that in other parts of Scripture. And you say, yeah, I I get it, Adam. I I see that. I know that. I understand that. Why do you really want to kind of think through and really focus on this particular text? I'll tell you why. Because there is a battle in our world right now for truth. A battle. And if you don't have your eyes open to that, you need to. Because it manifests itself in a lot of different ways, in a lot of different places, in a lot of different parts of our society. But at the core of the what I think a lot of Christians would describe as the struggles that we're facing now, the turmoil that we're facing now, whatever, whatever adjective you want to place in that sentence, the problems we're facing now in our country, in our world, I believe at the heart of those problems is a fight and a battle for absolute truth. Because there, there are people in our world right now that would say to you, there is no absolute truth. Right, there is no truth. Truth is what you make it. So if you've got an opinion about truth, fine. That's your truth. You live by that truth. I've got a different opinion about truth. That's fine. I'm going to live by my truth. In fact, we see this in research. This is not just an opinion. This is something that's becoming clearer and clearer as we get farther and farther along. In fact, May of 2020, Cultural Research Center, here's the title of the study they did. Survey finds Americans see many sources of truth and reject moral absolutes. Here's a quote from that study. Past generations of Americans views God viewed past generations of Americans viewed God as the basis of truth and morality, not anymore. A new study shows that most Americans reject any absolute boundaries regarding their morality with a majority 58% of adults survey believing instead that moral truth is up to the individual to decide. And so we're told in our world today, right, that we need to have tolerance and we need to accept every, every other point of view 
whether we like it or not. And so there's a, a, a movement and has been uh, when, when you think about religion and you think about salvation, there are lots and lots of people that would say, listen, there are lots of ways to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe, doesn't matter what you think, uh, it doesn't matter what you, what you study or say, as long as you believe that there is a God, that there's a heaven, and you believe that with your heart, then you'll one day end up in heaven, right? That's what a lot of people teach. That's what a lot of people think. The problem is that's not what the Scripture teaches. Right? Pew Research a couple of years ago did a survey on religion in our country. And listen to what they said. 66%, that's a lot. 66% of American Christians say that many religions can lead to eternal life. Isn't that incredible? 66% of American Christians believe that there's a lot of different ways you can get to heaven. The problem with that, that's not what Scripture teaches. Jesus doesn't say there's a lot of different ways to heaven. He doesn't say there's a lot of different ways to truth. He doesn't say there's a lot of different ways to live our life. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, here's the question, right? And I'm getting down to kind of brass tacks here, right? Can we still say it? Does anybody know what that means? A couple of you do, a little bit older. <laughs> this is the foundation right here, right? This is the foundation of what we're getting at. The question that we're asking really in our hearts when we come to this question, when we come to this discussion in this verse, is how do we know that the Christian faith is right? Because there are a lot of people, and I've had the great privilege and opportunity of traveling to different parts of the world and having fascinating conversations with other people that believe other things. And we come back to this place as believers. And we say, you know, if I'd been born, I've had this question asked me, if I'd been born in India or China or parts of Africa or different places in the Middle East or wherever, if I'd been born in different places, I might have different views as well. If I'd grown up in a different household with a different set of beliefs, I would probably have a different set of beliefs today. So how do we know that the Christian faith is right? How do we know that Jesus really is the way and the truth and the life? And no one comes to the Father except through him. Now I'm going to spend the next few minutes talking about this, and I'm going to give you a disclaimer before I do. This is a 30,000-foot view. People have been discussing this for centuries Countless books have been written on it. People way smarter than me have talked about it. So if you're interested in this and it's something that, that piques your curiosity a little bit, I'm happy, happy to give you some resources or sit out and talk with you in great detail about this. This is designed to give you just an overview to strengthen your faith a little bit and encourage you and then give you just a, a little bit of a, a nugget of a resource to go out and do a little more research on your own if you're interested. Because I'm just telling you, and I hope I'm wrong, but I feel like the time is coming in America where believers are going to have to make serious decisions about their faith. I just feel like we're heading that direction. And I don't know what that's going to look like and what kind of decisions we're going to have to make, but I, I worry in modern America that far too many believers believe things that they can't actually defend. Like, I believe these things because my mama told me. Well, that's a great start, but you need more than that, right? And I, I've said this to college kids for many, many years, and I'll continue to say it, and I'm always open to meet with any college. I'm, I'm going to meet with anybody, but a college kid that has a question... There are answers to these questions, I promise. You're going to go away to school. My daughter's in college now. And we have great conversations about the things her professors are teaching her, trying to teach her, 
the, the anti-Christian sentiment that she sees on her campus that so many others do as well. And professors are, are notorious and very good at sprinkling doubt about Christianity into their lectures. I'm just telling you, there are answers to these questions. You don't have to think that Christianity doesn't have smart people that have thought this through and there are really good answers. There are. So I'm going to give you again just a, just a quick overview helping us think through how do we know the Christian faith is the right way, it's the only way. Kind of three sub-points, I'm going to work through them as we think through them together. The first one, we're going to begin with this idea of proving that Jesus is who he says he is. We're going to begin with this idea that God exists. Let's start there. Now, we understand that there are people that don't necessarily think God exists. We understand there are atheists, there are agnostics, you know, that go either way. And then there are people that believe God exists. And I'm going to give you kind of two arguments that point to this idea of the fact that God exists. The first one is the design argument. Right? How many of you are wearing a watch? Okay? How many of you own a cell phone? Everybody? Just about everybody? Okay, let's imagine, let's just use a cell phone because I think everybody has a cell phone. I don't wear a watch, but I have a cell phone. Let's imagine that you took that cell phone and you could take it apart, right? You were, you were gifted with your hands and technology and you could literally take that phone apart and every single little component could be taken apart and you put it in a box. And you take that box and you set it over in the corner of your house and you leave it alone. How long will it take for that phone to morph back into a working operational phone, what do you think? A week? A month? A year? Ten years? Maybe your grandkids one day will walk in there and be like, whoa, it's working again, Grandpa, come look at your old phone. No, we all know we laugh at that idea. We know those components are never going to become a phone. Why? Because that phone was designed. Very complex. It was created in the mind of a designer. There was somebody that built the components. There was somebody that assembled the components. There was somebody that put all that together, right? Take the human body one step farther. Imagine the complexity of the eye. Let's just take the eye. The interesting thing about the eyeball is you think about evolution. I'm just giving you a 30,000-foot view, and I love talking about this, so come see me if you want to talk more about it. But the eyeball, when you take any one part of the eyeball out, it doesn't work. Like it either all works or none of it works, Right? So how does that evolve from just a couple pieces to another couple pieces to another couple pieces over millions of years till all of a sudden the eyeball just works, right? It's silly when we think about it. When you apply logic to these kinds of things, they don't make sense, right? The design argument says, listen, the world and the universe is just way too complicated. There's too much design built into it. If there's design, there must be a what? Designer. And it's interesting in our society, that's kind of a movement now. You can Google and think about that, but the design argument. People are arguing about who actually designed it now, right? Maybe they're ancient aliens. How many of you have seen the ancient alien show, right? That's where some people are going with this, right? And it's laughable to us because we're like, hello, and we know who designed it. We've got the answers right here. But the design argument helps us to see, listen, there's something greater than ourselves. There's something smarter than we are out there. And we use that argument to say that there is truly God. Another argument that God exists is the moral argument. It's very interesting. If you study civilizations all throughout history, no matter where they are, no matter when they live, no matter what language they spoke, they all have very simple principles of morality, right? Murder is wrong. Theft is wrong. 
Like no matter where you look and where you study, there are these simple ideas that there is a right and wrong. Those lines are blurred in certain places. But we can say pretty clearly there is a right and a wrong. So the question becomes, how do those people know the difference between right and wrong? How do they have a morality? How do they understand that murdering somebody is a problem? Stealing from somebody is a problem. We would argue that the creator, the moral God that we serve, instilled that within them when he created them. And so he created within us this moral design, right? So we know the difference between right and wrong. So we see a design argument. We see a moral argument. There are many others. I don't have time this morning to get into that, right? But we're saying there's great evidence to prove, we're just starting with this general premise, that God exists. Because we're going to say the Bible is accurate and we know that Jesus is the actual way. Let's start with the big picture God exists. Right up under that, we would say the Bible is accurate, that the Bible is absolute truth. All right, so we're saying that God exists, we're saying the Bible is accurate, and it is truthful. The question is, how do we know? Because everything we believe about Jesus Christ is found in this word, right? So there's a couple different ideas here, right? There's general revelation. God has generally revealed to us who he is. We can look at nature, we can think about the idea of design, morality. We can kind of generally understand that there is a God. But he gave us special revelation as well. This is the clear picture of exactly who Jesus is. So you can know a God exists outside of this, but if you want to know exactly who he is, we turn to the scripture. Here's the beautiful thing about the scripture. We can say that there's all sorts of proof that it is truly the word of God and it is accurate. So if you're one of these kind of people, you're not quite certain, maybe you're here this morning, you, you've never really thought about it, and you're not quite sure if the Bible's real, you know it's a good book, and maybe there's some morality in there, it's a good book for literature, here's a couple of things that'll just point to the accuracy of God's Word. First of all, the historical evidence. I would argue that the Bible is the greatest history book ever written. All that it talks about is related to civilizations and cities and kings and people groups, right? Here's what one writer said about it. Thousands of archaeological discoveries confirm its historical accuracy. Numerous civilizations, rulers, and events once thought legendary by the skeptics have been confirmed by archaeology. Even miraculous geographic events in Sodom and Gomorrah, Jericho, and others have passed the test of archaeological scrutiny. There are examples of archaeologists using this as their starting point to locate cities. And when they study God's Word and figure out exactly what the Bible says about it, they're able to locate things they'd never been able to locate before. There's great historical evidence. There's great divine inspiration in this. I've said this before, but if you don't know anything about the Bible, it's written by 40-plus authors over the course of about 1,500 years. Now imagine if I took 40 of you randomly, and this is even a, not as good of an example because you all live in the same time, but imagine I took 40 people and I set you in different places, and I said, you, you, you each need to write your own book about anything you want to write it about. We're going to bring all those books back together, and we're going to see if we can connect the dots and make a theme throughout. It would be very difficult to do. And yet what we see in Scripture, these 40-plus authors over 1,500 years, from the beginning of Scripture all the way through to the end, there's a story of redemption, isn't there? There's a story that sinful people have separated themselves from God, and the whole scripture is about his plan to redeem them back to himself. 
So we see historical evidence. We see the idea of divine inspiration built into this. The idea of prophecy is something we could talk for hours about. There are literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of prophecies in Scripture that have come true. I've got books about them if you want to borrow one. We could talk about all sorts of prophecies of the Old Testament. Some of the better ones that we're more familiar with relate specifically to Jesus. I think there are three or four hundred specific prophecies about Jesus that were spoken of in the Old Testament that were fulfilled in his life. It's just clear when you begin to take a look at the historical evidence, at the idea of divine inspiration of all the authors, you begin to understand the prophecies that have been fulfilled, you take into account how the Bible has worked in your life and has changed your heart. There's pretty compelling evidence that the Bible is accurate, that it is true. Now again, I'm giving you a 30,000 foot view. There are books and books and books written about this if you want to read it. So God exists. We're answering the question, how do we know Christianity is true? How do we know Jesus is the way and the truth and life? No one comes to the Father except through him. God exists. The Bible is accurate. Number three, Jesus claimed to be God and rose from the dead. You know, the claims of Jesus are very interesting. And there are people out there that would say, you know, Jesus was a good guy. Uh, He was a moral teacher, and I I like what he said, but he was not really the Son of God. He wasn't really Messiah. The problem with that is that's not what Jesus says. So you have to think logically. C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about this if you're interested. You can't say that Jesus was a good man and a moral teacher because he claimed to be God. And if he claimed to be God and wasn't really God, then he's not moral because he was a liar, right? C.S. Lewis says he's either a liar because he said he was God and he really wasn't, or he's a lunatic because he thought he was God and he really wasn't. Or he's Lord. He's either liar, lunatic, or Lord. Jesus made these claims to be Messiah. We see it clearly over and over. I am the, vine, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then he did something kind of incredible. Jesus says, listen, this is who I am. This is why I'm here. I've come so that the the Lord can use me. I've been sent by the Father to redeem people back to him. Then he did something amazing. He walked to the cross. He allowed himself to be crucified. Then three days later, he rose from the grave. Why? To prove he was Messiah. To prove that he was who he says he was. Now, here's what some people do. They get to this point and they think, you know what, I get that. Uh, I, I hear the accounts of Jesus. I know they're found in Scripture. I know a lot of people were talking about it. But what if all those people were lying, right? What if all the different accounts in Scripture uh, of these uh, accounts of the resurrection of Christ, what if those people were liars? Well, just, just pause for one second. I'm going to come back to that. Just imagine now, think about how we view court today. Imagine a trial today. Imagine the significance we place on the testimony of just one eyewitness account. Imagine the significance we would place on two or four or ten or eight or all the numerous eyewitness accounts. And so you come to this point of saying, listen, these people saw something. Something must have happened. Chuck Colson explains it pretty well. If you don't know who Chuck Colson is, Chuck Colson is a believer. Uh, he's written a lot about his salvation. He's a big was a big movement in kind of the Christian walk and helped people grow in their faith. And you've probably heard of, maybe read some of his books. What you might not know about Chuck Colson is before he became a believer, he worked with Richard Nixon. Colson was tied up in the Watergate scandal, right? He was one of the I think eleven or twelve people in that circle that actually went to prison. So Chuck Colson worked for Nixon during the Watergate break-in, went to prison 
got out of prison, and was saved. Now, here's what he said. I want you to listen to his words. I think it's fascinating. Chuck Colson says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men, he's talking about the, the disciples of Jesus, 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Right? You start thinking through it logically, and you ask yourself, why would these followers lie about this? Why would the disciples lie about it? They weren't getting any money. They weren't getting any fame. All they were doing by lying is making their life worse. You understand that? More abuse came because of this. More suffering, more pain. We come to this conclusion that they saw something. We can't just write it off. Like you can't just say these people made all this up and it's fake because clearly they saw something and they lived the rest of their lives in great struggle believing that it was true. Outside of Scripture, like, okay, great, the Scripture's there. Is there anything outside of Scripture that would point to this? Absolutely. There's dozens of accounts. I'm going to give you one. That's how much time I've got this morning. Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian, right? Never became a believer. He's the foremost authority, first century Judaism. If you want to read about Jewish history, you read Josephus. He's got a massive volume of works. Very detailed about how the Jewish people lived, about what they thought, about their politics. Here's what Josephus said. When Pilate... Upon hearing him, that's Jesus, accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him, that's Jesus, to be crucified. Those who in the first place came to love him did not give up their affection for him. For on the third day he appeared to them restored to life. The prophets of God had prophesied this and countless other marvelous things about him, right? Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that listen, Jesus was not only followed by these people, he's not only crucified, but on the third day he appeared to them restored to life. Right? We, we get this sense through the teachings of Scripture, we get this sense through extra biblical accounts that Jesus was not only crucified and buried in the grave three days, but he rose from the grave to prove that he truly was Messiah. And so as we answer this question, again, big picture, to answer this question about is Jesus really the way, are there not other ways to heaven? We see God exists. We've kind of talked about the design argument, the moral argument. We've seen that the Bible is accurate through historical accuracies, through, through the prophecies, through divine inspiration. On and on that list goes, by the way. And then we see that Jesus claimed to be God and rose from the dead, right? He said he was Messiah. You can't say he didn't claim to be Jesus. And you can't really say that a lot of people, even people outside of the Scripture, say that he was who he says he was. He died on the cross, and he came back to life. And so we kind of arrive at this conclusion based on all these facts and all of this truth that Christianity must, in fact, be true. That's what Jesus says in verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas Akempis, who lived in the late 13, early 1400s, wrote a book, The Imitation of Christ. He put it very well. Here's what he said, speaking of the way and the truth and the life. He said, without the way, there's no going. 
Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way which you must follow, the truth which you must believe, the life for which you must hope. I am the unbreakable way, the infallible truth, the never-ending life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, true life, life blessed, life created. If you abide in my way, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, and you shall attain life everlasting. I would say to you, as Christ does very simply, Jesus is the way. What are you now going to do with that truth? Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we thank you for the words of Christ. We thank you for this account in the book of John. Lord, we understand that Jesus is the way and the truth and life. There's no other way to heaven but through Christ. Thank you for this truth. Thank you for what you've shown us in your word this morning, Father. I pray that it's strengthened our faith. I pray that it's challenged and encouraged us. And I pray now during this time of invitation, you speak very clearly to us. May you receive honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.